This is episode 71 of The New Disruptors, Wheels on Fire with Ellie Blue, permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode is brought to you in part this week by FinbergCPA.com. Your job is to make what you do the best that you can. It's Abraham Finberg's job to make your life tax and accounting worry-free. From dealing with those pesky 1099Ks to complex accounting needs, go to FinbergCPA.com for all your financial support. That's F-I-N-B-E-R-G-C-P-A dot com. You can get a free phone consultation today by using the coupon code DISRUPT. We're also brought to you this week in part by New Relic. High fives to all the rule breakers and disruptors. Here's to working late nights and to wearing oversized concentration-enhancing headphones on your furrowed brows. New Relic thanks you. The entire internet thanks you. Visit newrelic.com slash disruptors to learn more about their integrated web application monitoring. You can help support this podcast directly with contributions of as little as $1 per month. Visit patreon.com slash newdisruptors, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, to learn more about the benefits of being a direct patron. Thanks this week to Brian Rutledge, Sean Wickett, and Abraham Finberg. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that attempts to never spin its wheels. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, which you can find at boingboing.net. Ellie Blue is a bike advocate, writer, and publisher, and has perhaps run more Kickstarter campaigns than nearly any other person or group. She's fiercely in favor of using bikes as a primary mode of transportation and is a feminist bicycle activist. We'll delve into both those issues in this podcast. Ellie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. It's a real pleasure. You're, you're kind of a, a recurring theme in the last few years. Like You keep coming up in all these different contexts of all the stuff that I'm looking at in terms of uh, my interest in, in both like the change that's happening in society, that we want to have um, alternative transportation, which I'm very interested in but not active in, and, uh, and then Kickstarter uh, work, crowdfunding, uh, community development, and publishing. So you're kind of <laughs> – And science fiction. And well, science I'd... fiction is right. I've got that book. Thank you for the gift. You gave me a copy of a science fiction by Bicycling science fiction book that's on my bedside, and uh, so let, let's start with the like definitionally. I don't want I don't want to pigeonhole who you are, but you're often labeled as a bike advocate, which is kind of a um, it's almost a specific profession, but that's not quite accurate. How do you describe yourself more accurately when you're trying to elevator speech yourself to people? That's a great question. I say that I am a bicycle activist as well as a writer. It depends really on what hat I'm wearing when I'm talking to people because I do have several hats and they can be confusing. But the way I see it, you know, the word advocate means something really specific, which is you speak for people. You represent the people Mm. that you represent to people in a position of power. And probably I do some of that without realizing it, but that really isn't my job. um, And it really isn't where my heart is. I see myself more as an activist. I try to speak to as many people as possible directly and inspire them and empower them and activate them really to, you know, most of the people I talk to are already interested in bicycling or passionate about bicycling. And I try to give them the tools and resources they need to really be effective advocates for themselves. Oh, that's great. So that's one of those things like talking at, talking with, talking for, like positionally you're talking with. 
people. That, that is the goal. That that's great. And so I know one of the I think think the reason that I first heard about your work. Well, por- partly you're in Portland, as is about fifty uh, percent of the people I interview, because Portland is full <laughs> of stuff going on that's new and different. Um, but it's it's uh, partly because you've used Kickstarter in a very interesting way, and I think it ties into a lot of the bigger themes and ideas you have is uh, many people go to Kickstarter for one big project. They have a thing, they've reached a point in their career or their work or the group's uh, position, the group needs to move forward, and they, they go out for a big fundraiser. You put an enormous amount of effort. It takes months. It might chew up an entire year or two years of your time. And, and I just am at the end of a five-month process that, that stretches back probably eight or nine months in total. But you, you've, you've used Kickstarter a different way. I just looked at your Kickstarter page. It says you've created 18 Kickstarter campaigns. True. Actually, 19. I, I did one under a different account with a friend. So that's a lot coming up on my 20th. So it's, why turn to Kickstarter? Well, so I guess you're using it very differently than most people tend to use it because very few people have run even more than two campaigns. I think there's a lot now, probably maybe 5% or 10% maybe have run two campaigns, but, but 19 is a lot. What is your take on it? I mean, why go to Kickstarter and use crowdfunding over and over again? Oh, that's a good question. So I started out really kind of without planning it at all or knowing what I was doing or even thinking that I was going to be doing this more than once. I had written a zine and I wanted to publish it. It was a sort of a long rant about my history of bicycling and why it turned me into a feminist. And it seemed like a little bit too long and too personal for the internet. And I wanted to have a thing that I could either give to people or sell. So I thought, oh, I'll print a zine. And I wrote it and I had a friend design it and lay it out. And then I looked at how much it would cost to print and it wasn't going to cost very much. I was looking at the local anarchist printer and it was only going to be like $300, $350, but that was more than I had in my checking account at the time. And so I didn't know what to do. And then a friend told me about Kickstarter, which was pretty new at the time. This was in, I think, maybe June or July of 2010. So I thought, okay, why not? I'll do it. And I think I set a really low, I think I set an even lower goal than I needed to, like $250, because I just didn't know if anyone would back this or I would make any money. And of course I made like twice what I was asking for and people really liked it. And then, you know, people started asking where the next issue was. And so, and people started submitting work for it, which was amazing. And then they started demanding to fund it. The, the, they wanted to back it on <laughs> Kickstarter. So I really was just like, okay, following what my readers wanted and sort of the, and the thing grew as I went. And now I'm asking for more money than I used to. Like now I ask for between, you know, 1000 and, uh, I actually just recently raised more than $10,000 for a children's book called zoom Mm -hmm. about a little boy riding his balance bike. That's been my biggest project to date. But, um, and my current project that I just launched last night is for a second anthology of feminist science fiction about bicycles called bikes in space Two, And I'm trying to raise $4,000 to do that because I'm trying to, kind of cover my real expenses. What I should point out too is not only have you launched 19 campaigns, but the 18 campaigns that have completed all funded as well. You have a 100% success rate with what you've done. I have, and many of them, some of them have been really close down to the wire, but most of them I've made more than my goal. So, you know, my friends and mentors keep trying to convince me to go for bigger goals and I'm sort of slowly starting to do that. But as you found, you know, raising a lot of money on Kickstarter is a lot of work. So it kind of depends on how much capacity I have to really work on the project. Well, I keep coming back to the notion that, that Kickstarter is a great tool to uh, size 
a project to the audience you think you have. And if you gauge mm-hmm. the size of your audience correctly, then it works really well. And if you if you misestimate it, if you say um, – you misoverestimate it, to quote George Bush backwards, uh, <laughs> or George W., uh, it, if you – if you think, okay, I have 500, you know, people who will do this and only 50 pledge, it's one thing. But the opposite is great. If you have – often you think you have 500, there's 5,000. That can be fantastic. I guessed based on a lot of information, I decided I had about 1,500 people who would potentially back the magazine Kickstarter and we had 1,467 backers. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. That's awesome. Way to go. <laughs> it was crazy. The unseen hand of the marketplace. But some of your projects, I mean, you've gone as low as, you know, there's been like 50, 40 or 50 people up to uh, hundreds of people. But this seems to be one of these uh, um, where the energy flows kind of things. Like it worked once, then it worked again. And I got to ask, like, does it feel like do you want to try a different route when this just keeps working? There's no seemingly – are there downsides to doing it where you say, gosh, I wish I wasn't shackled to this, but it's working and I should try something else? Or have you now tried different models in the midst of this? Um, I have not tried other models, frankly, because I can't afford to. I mean, the way my business works because I've set it up this way is that every time I want to publish something – I have to fund it on Kickstarter first just in order to be able to pay the printer. And the benefit to that is Kickstarter is sort of this publicity machine. Like, I mean, not that Kickstarter publicizes your project for you, though when that happens, it's really nice, but more that it kind of gives you this structure that works really, really well for getting the word out about something you're excited about to other people who are also going to be excited and then sort of converting that energy into partly into sales, but also into just sort of like general excitement about the project. So all of my um, asks have been based on cost. None of them have been calculated whatsoever based on how many people I think will back it or any such scientific standards. They're all just based on like what I literally need to do in order to make the project work. And if any of my projects don't work, then I'm going to have to put them on hold until I'm able to change my business model. And honestly, that won't happen until I have a runaway bestseller. Like if I ever have a book that just sells tens of thousands of copies in the first year, I'll be able to do whatever I want. I can walk away from Kickstarter. But honestly, I don't think I will because it really is like a community building and a movement building tool. And what I do is very much, you know, it's a business on one hand, but it's also movement building on the other hand. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't want to do it. Well, I was going to ask about that because uh, now do you have a, um, I mean, these are basic questions, but do you have a mailing list that's been assembled from this where each book and and things you've sold directly after the Kickstarters have done have added to a group you can reach uh, directly? I do. I have a mailing list. It's opt-in only. So, um, and I, did, I used to do it every time someone bought something from me or back to Kickstarter project, I would put them on a mailing list. But then I realized, or well, a friend of mine told me that was absolutely not okay. So I ditched that mailing list. I started a new one where people could opt in. I do invite all my Kickstarter backers to join that list. I invite everyone who buys something from my website to join that list. And it's got about five or 600 people. Um, I haven't sent anything out to it for the current project. So if anyone wants to join it, they'll be getting an email really soon. That's great. It's well, see, that's and that's another one of those scaling issues. Is I guess if you had a if you had a mailing list with five thousand people on it, and you only needed fifty people to make a project work, that would be a different approach than um, having you know a few hundred and then saying I need fifty to make it work. You want to go back to the mechanism that worked instead of maybe trying you know to do uh, not direct mail but to market directly first and do pre-orders. Maybe on the other hand, though, I mean, if I I have a mailing list of five hundred people who mm-hmm. all 
choose to be on my mailing list, I have yes. a huge open rate. I have above 50% open rate. So I think that if I had a bigger mailing list of people who are less committed, I mean, I'll have a bigger one over time, but you know, if I kind of had taken a shortcut, then I don't think people would be as excited to open my email, read it, be part of it, you know? And as it is, it's like, I mean, it's not like I'm sending you a personal email anymore, like it was, like I literally did back at the beginning, but you know, it's definitely like, I feel like people are feel rightly that they're discovering something sort of secret and cool and underground. And, you know, that's, I think, motivating. It's it's motivating to me. And what you mentioned earlier that this is kind of a means to an end, that your goal is community building and you're doing it partly by being able to bring a community, help, help form a community that wants to make these things come into existence. And each time you do a project, it's another community, even if there's a lot of overlap, it's still another community that's made something happen that, uh, you've oriented towards uh, larger goals that you've had. Exactly. And I mean, if I wanted to like make a living and have life be easy, I suppose I would get a job or something. But as it is, I'm able to support myself, not extravagantly, but decently, basically writing and publishing. And then the publishing is becoming a little bit more of a piece of that every few months. But I do it because I believe in it, because I see the world around me and I want it to be a place where I'm excited to be. And a big part of that is trying to sort of inspire people to talk about issues that are important to all of us and to kind of see the, see the familiar world in a different way. And that's really where my feminism comes from. It's where my interest in bicycling comes from. And it's where it's the reason that I, that it's the reason that I do what I do. I'd love to dive into that more because I think in the conversations I've had in the last um, year and a half now with people, you know, I talk to artists and creators and intermediaries and all sorts of makers and doers. And increasingly, uh, you know, I find an interest in people. A lot of people do that. They want to improve something about the world. And sometimes it's being able to do something aesthetic that they think is uh, interesting. Sometimes it's just, you know, improving their segment by being able to make a living and then put their time into meaningful things. But, but lately I've talked to folks like, um, like Jean McDonald, fellow Portlander, uh, who's behind App Camp for Girls and just quit her, her for-profit job to become the full-time, you know, executive director of this program. And with uh, your referral, talk to Amelia Greenhall about Double Union, a, a feminist, or I should say it's a women-oriented makerspace uh, in San Francisco, and I'll link all this in the in the show notes. And uh, I'm I thought this I thought my program would be a bit about I don't want to say financial goals, but sort of about achieving some sort of financial independence or control over one's career. And I don't think I realized how much this is affecting folks like you who have a a position of um, of helping of like uh, consciousness raising or advocacy or or involvement in creating community effort. And it, it this is kind of new territory because. The traditional methods of fundraising and other things are well established and have kind of a structure. I feel like you're discovering something, something new here. Yeah, yes, I think so. It's funny. Um, some once in a while, someone who maybe doesn't totally know very much about how these things work will say to me, "Oh, why don't you raise venture capital?" and I just love that because it's like exactly the opposite of what I'm doing, you know, instead of like kind of striving to be chosen by these few gatekeepers and lavished with money in exchange for basically owning my company and like forcing me into a a much different business model that I'd be in. I'm asking the world to fund my project. That's how my friend Lolly puts Kickstarter. She's like, you just ask the world and the world helps your dreams come true. And on most of my projects, the average pledge has been under $20. 
for all of the donations. And this is like thousands of dollars that we're talking about in increments of under $20, which is just, it's, it's a partly heartwarming and partly amazing, but it's also, it really keeps me honest. Like I could not do what I do without buy-in from dozens or hundreds of people on an ongoing basis. And it really, you know, kind of keeps me grounded in this community that I'm a part of and that I'm trying to help build. And it also, you know, keeps me knowing that I'm on the right track and I'm not like kind of going off the deep end into decisions that aren't necessarily good for the movement or good for me. And, you know, the thought of raising a lot of money at once and then kind of being able to live more comfortably and work a little bit less is appealing sometimes, but I know that it wouldn't make me happy. Well, you have all these different directions you could go to, it seems like. So one way would be go out and raise money at some level. The other would be, you know, start a nonprofit that you then do grant writing for and or do foundations or, you know, another would be to get a job and do this in your spare time and use the money from whatever, you know, job you had. It would be the thing you do. And and mm-hmm. this is like this position, what you're doing now that I, I know, I mean, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. I say this too often on the podcast. I grew up in Eugene. It was full of people advocating all kinds of stuff and involved in all kinds of incredible foemen of all sorts of things in the 80s. And and a lot of those turned into movements and changes and so forth. But the reason it happened is Eugene was incredibly cheap to live in in the 1980s. I knew Uh people who were living on two to $3,000 a year. You know, one of them worked at a juice co-op. It was a co-op that still exists. And he made enough money in part-time work to fund the other stuff he wanted to do. And then as the cost of living goes up, as you've seen in Portland, where it's really dramatically Mm -hmm. gone up from being an affordable town, this seems like a way, I don't know if you approach it that way, this is a way for you to to, to counter some of that by using some of the same market forces that are increasing the cost of living, it also gives you access to an audience that helps you counter that to continue to do your work? Does that is that part of your thinking? I don't know. I mean, it's really all of this kind of massive gentrification in Portland is not exactly new. It's definitely newly happening in my neighborhood. I live in, um, I live very near Division Street, which mm-hmm. basically in the 1970s, there was going to be a freeway. And the freeway was a done deal and they started demolishing buildings and every property values just plummeted. And then a group of citizen activists successfully fought the freeway and it was never built, but it really took until the last maybe decade for that area to start to bounce back. Mm -hmm. And suddenly in the last year, it's like, you know, all sorts of new condo developments are going up. There's fancy restaurants. I like walk down the street and there's people, you know, dressed up in thousand dollar outfits. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of this mind blowing culture change. And I'm pretty sure these are not the people who are buying my books and zines. Mm-hmm. A lot of them seem to drive there from other places to go to fancy restaurants. And I don't know, I haven't quite totally figured out where they're coming from, but you know, I don't know. On the one hand, like having more prosperity is obviously a really good thing for everybody, including myself. On the other hand, yeah, paying the rent is getting harder and harder. Like I, when I started out publishing, I lived in a camping trailer, literally with my boyfriend. We paid a hundred dollars a month total to park our trailer on a neighbor's driveway. And it was only because of that, that I was able to kind of devote myself full time to building this thing. And that was really the foundation that I built it off. Now I have to be a little bit more savvy, a little bit more, you know, thinking about like everything I'm spending and everything I'm taking in. And that definitely detracts from it. But, you know, it would be nice to never have to think about money, but it's, you know, it's the reality that you have to. Uh, That answer is like, two different questions and I don't think either one of them was the one that you asked. No, well, I think it's all, but it's a whole evolving thing is that, you know, people who want to stake out a social position get priced out of their ability to do it because they can't even afford to live in a place where they want to stake that position out. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about, you know, Kickstarter is not a panacea or Indiegogo or any of the other sites. They're not panaceas for, for anything, but your, in your particular mode, that's that you're, 
you know, log rolling on each time or jumping from one log to the next and it spins and jump things like not to give you too much. I, I've just gone through the publishing thing. So it feels like that sometimes. <laughs> it's a little like that. Oh, it's bootstrapping from one to the next, but it's, um, you know, you're building, you know, say your average, the average amount of money you've raised over time. I know some projects are bigger or smaller, but it progressively increases on average year over year. Um, you know, a couple mm-hmm. like this $10,000 plus project. And, and it's not that I'm asking you, Hey, should advocates or people with a, people with a social mission, should you turn to Kickstarter as a way to fund the things that then help you spread that? But it's, it feels like you're carving out a way to do that for yourself. And, and maybe it's a way we'll see more people doing it where you use the technology of crowdfunding, the technology of mobile communication, of the improvements in publishing, of distribution online, that all these tools may help you deal with the economic change that's also pricing you and other folks out of the ability to live in these places. Maybe. I mean, you know, Kickstarter is a new technology and it's been incredible. It's been what's enabled me to start my business. But at the same time, I think the reason that my business is succeeding and the reason that it's growing month by month and year by year is because I use actually a really traditional um, business model for publishing, which is, you know, I don't even put out ebooks. I don't use print on demand. I don't use author services. I, you know, have books offset print and quantities of thousands. I have them delivered. I do as many things in-house as I possibly can. You know, I often do my own design. I do my own editing. I do my own, you know, every step of the process. I do my own order fulfillment and shipping. And because I'm able to kind of keep costs down by being a one-woman show, I'm really able to kind of build the business to the point where that actually becomes sustainable in the long term. And, you know, hopefully I'd like to bring on one or two other people eventually. But, you know, with this publishing model, if you don't have a bunch of capital, then you really do have to build it slowly and kind of develop passive income over time and just be business savvy. So I would say that I'm actually disrupting publishing, if you want to call it that, by being not non-disruptive, but by being traditional, by doing the things that actually work and not jumping on these sort of new ideas about what the media is and what it can do. And I mean, I know that you've made publishing work by using these new tools in a really savvy way. And I have a lot of respect for that, but it's, it's like, the ex- that's the, almost the exception that proves the rule. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's right. It's a, and it's a constant battle. Like everything I'm doing, I think is an experiment. Like mm-hmm. people are like, Hey, you're so successful. I'm like, no, there's money coming in. There's money going out. <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's surprisingly large amounts of money. And I would yep. love to keep more of it that's coming through, yep. but, but I am paying. I mean, part of my experiment is, is even though we're for profit is that it's uh, it's a collaborative effort. And I love that. And I know a lot of mm-hmm. your work is collaborative too, is that I want to rise. I want to lift as many boats as I can while my is floating. Yes. I, don't, I don't want a yacht. Like I want a nice houseboat. And I want everybody else to have a boat, and let's all go out in the water at the same time. And and, and I, have a houseboat party. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's and I then love it's that. yeah. Then you're like the the book I just did. I'm more satisfied with this than any project I've ever worked on before because I had the least amount to do with it at some level. <laughs> so many other, it's so many showcasing people's work. I, you know, I hired designers, had all kinds of people involved in it. And so it doesn't, it feels like a little bit me and a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I imagine you share that same experience where you get to, oh, yeah. to bring people's stuff together and do something that they may not be able to do individually because either skills or time or interest or whatever, but you still get to be, you still get to do something with them, make something happen. Exactly. And I feel like a big part of what I do, and I spend a lot of time doing this, and somebody I met with this morning was trying to convince me to actually start a business doing this. And I was like, no, actually, it's essential that I not <laughs> ask for money. But what I do is I try to like help other people do well in 
creating books essentially. And I mean, you could, if you want to put it one way, I'm like trying to nurture my competitors, but if you put it another way, like every time somebody publishes a feminist book about bicycling, that helps me, that increases the market, that improves, you know, everybody's, everybody's sales and everybody's situations. And if they do it well, and if they actually do it in a way that breaks even or makes money for them, then that kind of further proves that this is a viable thing to be doing. So I try to like really try to help people and encourage people as much as possible. I also, I mean, I have an incredible mentor in my boyfriend who's also a publisher. He mm. is, he founded Microcosm Publishing. His name's Joe Beal and he, he's been doing it since he was 17. We're, he's 36 now and just running this successful traditional publishing business. And I've just soaked up so much knowledge from him and so much, you know, so many mistakes that I, I could have made, I didn't make because of him. And so I try to kind of like pass that through and pass it on to other people as well. I feel, I feel, I feel indebted. Well, one of the things that I think, uh, I mean, that's, it's wonderful to have that. I have so many mentors and people I've turned to. And Mm -hmm. in fact, this show has been not just for listeners. For me, it's been a mentoring experience because (laughs) I talked to dozens and dozens of people like, how did you make this work? And, Mm -hmm. and try to fold that, that back in. But one of the advantages, and I'm sure you've learned this from Joe because of his longitudinal experience is that now you have a ton of stuff to sell. So not only, yeah. So, I mean, that's that thing is additive. So great. You raised, you know, $1,500 in one project and and 10,000 another and 4,000 another and that funded you've as you say you've been very careful about your costs so you know what it mm-hmm. costs to produce it but now you have extra right and you now have a library of things you can sell so every project you do gives you that much more depth and breadth exactly and it's also really insulated me from my mistakes in a way to kind of have mm. that back catalog because there's definitely been kickstarter projects where i asked for too little or where i got carried away and wanted three colors on the cover and shouldn't have done it but did it anyway and just having the sort of back catalog continuing to sell has really made it so that i didn't you know raise eight hundred dollars for a kickstarter and need to pay twelve hundred dollars to the printer and you know not have a plan because, you know, I can bring in $400 from selling other things to pay the extra. So, yeah, it really gives you, I guess, passive income is what you call it when you have a thing that you're not paying for every day, but you're selling it every day. Oh, yeah. Let's make money while we sleep. That is the that is the ultimate goal in life is, is <laughs> to have somebody selling things for us. But, you know, I guess that's where I cycle back around a second. I'm sorry. It's not a pun intended. I'm going to say cycle and you're going to say, what? Uh, let's cycle <laughs> back a second. Is uh, When you talked about being uh, more like a traditional publisher in many ways, but also overturning it is, you know, I'll say from my experience and from those, uh, you know, like Matt Bors is a cartoonist in Portland, Oregon, who you know. Well, as I, uh, Matt, uh, he did a book on his own. He did somewhere in between. He did his own fulfillment, and his goal was to have piles. Uh, his book, uh, I think, he did the Kickstarter in 2012, mm-hmm. and he sent out a bunch. You know, he did handle all the postage and mailing and all that. But he, you know, used a commercial printer. He had help in editing process, and he brought in some stuff. But his goal was to have piles of books to sell later. And he sold, I think, hundreds of them at conventions and, yes. and directly from his website. And that worked out well. In my case, I'm like, the volume I was at was so high. I I am trying to find that balance between, you know, I paid Amazon to do fulfillment and shipping because mm-hmm. literally I could not have done it as cheaply as they do given the size of the book and the quantity, but I had to give away. I mean, and so in that case, I'm not sure I gave away money. I had to deal with a lot of logistics, but mm-hmm. there's other things where, you know, I paid someone to do something like, oh, if you're conserving in your case, maybe 90% of the, or, or 90% of the, of the soft costs of like labor costs, mm-hmm. you're able to benefit from your own labor and only the hard costs, the printing and actual mailing costs and packaging material seem to be the the variable that's less under control. 
Yeah. And I mean, printing, like I have it down pretty well. Packaging, it's not that much. It's, 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 you know, postage is a huge cost, but yeah, printing is my biggest cost. Have you reached um, the point where your postage costs more than your per unit deliver? Like <laughs> I, I, I would almost hit that point where it was going to cost more to deliver the books than they cost to make. Oh, that's a good question. You know what? It totally does. I mean, it has from the start. Like my books have always cost like less than a dollar a piece, even mm-hmm. my zines and postage costs more. But, you know, postage is something that customers are usually happy to pay for. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You can <laughs> add that on, on the top. I, I was going to ask also, you said earlier that you really you have very little that's in electronic form. It, that sounds like a choice that you made as opposed to uh, or, or is it an infrastructure thing about being able to support delivering ebooks and and uh, other kinds of formats? I mean, partly I think I'm maybe just revealing myself to be a Luddite here. I mean, I am technically savvy, but I'm, I don't totally have the patience for some of these things sometimes, but I did actually convert the first six zines that I wrote or not the first seven into ebook format. And I put them up for sale on Kindle and I put them up for sale on my website. And it's been, you know, all the people, all the 20 people who said they really wanted an ebook, they all bought them, but that was about it. Like, what people would do is I would advertise the eBooks. I would like post about them on social media and people would come to my website and buy the paper book. So oh, okay. it was like a good marketing tool, but it just wasn't worth it to have it up there. And then I made some mistakes with the formatting. So I decided to just take them down instead of have, you know, I mean, they weren't the worst mistakes in the world, but I wanted it to be perfect. So I, I have a couple of things up on Kindle. And then the books that I wrote for Microcosm are available as eBooks across all the platforms. But I just really haven't bothered with it. And I keep, it's actually on my short list of tasks to sort of get to in the next year is to kind of teach myself to, you know, do snappy eBook conversions and just get them out there. But it doesn't make sense at all. Based on the sales I've seen so far, it does not make sense to pay somebody to do it. Yeah, it's tricky. It's almost a perspective thing. Like you want to do it because you think there'd be sales you're missing. And again, if it's your labor, then it's just your time that you could be doing something else. Conceivably, maybe not. Uh, maybe you, maybe you have, oh, I have some free yeah. time. Like, like you or I have free time. I have exactly. some free time. I'll do whatever. But, um, but yeah, then you, if you pay someone else, suddenly you're, in, in the end, I wound up, um, uh, significant subset. I shouldn't say significant, but a, you know, a couple of percentage points of the Kickstarter went to paying an expert to get us into the EPUB and Mobi formats that we promised. Mm-hmm. Because, and I learned now how to back that into the, the development process when I'm using InDesign yes. to make the books. And, and I, that's been my problem thus far also, is I design things totally for print without that in mind at all. Hey, let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about New Relic, a sponsor this week. Our friends at New Relic asked me to take a minute and say a big data thank you to all you data nerds out there who build all the great stuff that we all know and love. They wanted me to give a shout out to the developers, the software geeks, the code jockeys, those brave few who see things differently. High fives, the rule breakers and disruptors who work late nights, who focus so hard, who create the internet that we know and love. Now, what's really cool about New Relic is that they help everyone's software work better. They make your job easier. Nowadays, if you're in any business, you've got software as a critical component of it, even if you're not a software company. Software powers our apps, it runs our databases, it manages our accounts, and it it powers the e-commerce sites and email programs and everything else. So what New Relic offers is a way to monitor the entire process of software. They help improve software performance so that users have a better experience and your business is more successful. You can visit newrelic.com slash disruptors for an offer and more information about their all-in-one web application performance management tool. 
Their software lets you see performance from the end user experience through servers down to the line of application code. Check them out at newrelic.com slash disruptors. And now back to our program. It's a tricky thing. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna talk more about EPUB conversion. I mean, on this podcast in the future, so lo- probably an entire series. To be I would that. love to know what you've learned. About oh my that. god, it's uh, it's crazy. But um, it's not. I guess that's the funny thing is I, I have this. In fact, I'm working on a, a short piece for the Economist Babbage blog about the fact that printing something is easier than making ebooks, which is weird. I mean, mm-hmm. a PDF is one thing. Like a PDF is simple in some ways. If, but like making an actual e format, you know, EPUB or or Mobi, the printing part was much easier. Mm-hmm. And that's weird. That sounds like the same experience for you. Like, all right, oh, I yeah. can, I know how to do that part, but oh my God, how do I get the Kindle? There's the five different, like, oh my God. I know, right? And then you don't sell that many and then it costs, like it costs more and you can't charge as much for the ebook, which right. is just, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like Amazon is doing really well with people's ebooks, but individuals are not doing as well with some really great exceptions. Um, well, the financial thing you know. just mentioned, that's the funny thing. So if I sell a book, so in my case, you know, the, my Kickstarter covered printing about 1,500 books and, and actually dollar for dollar, I think about, there was a little bit of overage, which I put into design and other development projects for the magazine. But the, you know, it probably costs about the list price of the book to print and deliver the book in the ebook formats. But mm-hmm. uh, every additional copy is essentially, you know, I, have, I make about, you know, 80% of the cover price because mm-hmm. it's just shipping at that point. But that's the weird part, right? Is that if you yep. sell a book for $30 and you've already paid the cost from your Kickstarter and you make 80% or whatever is your soft cost that you get after you fulfill it, well, the ebook you're selling for less and it's the same amount of work. You had to do the same mm-hmm. amount of work. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I think this That's is weird. what's getting lost in the debate about the future of publishing. I mean, of course, the old dinosaurs can't afford to be publishers anymore. And this is why the big houses are struggling because their overhead is so massively high and they have to sell so many hundreds of thousands of books just to break even on a title. You know, like, I mean, I think Lonely Planet stopped doing um, cycling guidebooks because they couldn't make money selling fewer than 25,000 each. A friend of mine started publishing cycling guidebooks herself and she can make money publishing four or 5,000 copies. So this is the thing you were saying at the outset. We should, let's come back to that. But that's, that's fascinating. Is that right? The scale is that, and I I should point out like that's the issue that about the eBooks too, right? Is the, the joy of the eBook is let's say you put out um, bikes in space two as an eBook and a a print book and you sold 500 copies of the print book. You'd be delighted. I know. (laughs) And, uh, and then somebody picked this up. You know, Neil Gaiman or someone with a bazillion followers says everyone needs to buy this collection and suddenly you sell 10,000 ebooks. Well, it would, it would be not ruinous, but you would have to completely revamp everything if people came in to buy 10,000 print books suddenly. You'd be oversold. And so the ebook is like a pressure valve. But if you're only going to huh. sell dozens or hundreds of ebooks, then it's an expense center as opposed to like a profit center, I think. I agree. I I would say that if somebody suddenly wanted to buy 10,000 copies of any of my books, I would be so delighted to no, have that problem. They would, have to wait, they would have to wait an extra maybe two or three weeks to get them. Right. Some of them would, but that would be okay. We could all get along. You'd have to build a new kind of business to do that where the ebook, it's like, oh, it's just sold. I mean, I would, need to, I would need to pay $60 a month for a storage space. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we can deal with that. You would have to get more hours. Well, then you could, you'd have the money to hire people in to help pack if you needed to or you know, yeah, do packing yeah. parties. But, people could but, come over for a packing party. I'd pay them... To, 
money. That would be it. Would be fine. It would not be a problem. My argument would be yeah, and I and I, to- and I totally understand. I love it if like suddenly my you know the three hundred copies I have uh, printed extra for the the magazine book like if those all disappeared and there was ba- I'd be like yay hooray. But <laughs> but I was thinking that is that thing though is that the impression is that the ebook is more valuable to us as publishers because we don't have to make multiples of it. We make one, we do it right, we perfect it, and then we can sell an infinite number with essentially no additional overhead for ourselves. But that only plays out at a certain scale where for our scale. Mm-hmm. selling more print books is probably more desirable or, or oh, yeah. it's more likely and it's more valuable because we're not going to sell 10,000 ebooks suddenly or we'd love it if we could but <laughs> it's not likely to happen yeah i know i'd love well that's what the the viral effect of the internet means it could happen anytime to either of us but you have no idea and you can often not cause it to happen something weird goes on and it makes it happen so i want to cycle sorry i'm saying it again i'm going to say something else. i want to circle around back <laughs> to what you were just talking about too about the scale the scale issue you you'd said at the outset of the show that you thought um or maybe actually we were talking before the show. This is the danger of talking before the show. <laughs> is that we were talking about some of the big publishing issues and the Lonely Planet thing you just mentioned that the New Yorker article by George Packer about Amazon and how it's sort of the giants are battling in, in the heavens. Amazon's contending with the big mm-hmm. publishers and there's lightning bolts going around, but it gives us mere mortals some space to play. Wh- what do you think that space is for people when you have these giant fights going on? And, and as you say, like Lonely Planet, if they need, if that number, you know, 25,000 copies to make it worthwhile to them, but you and I could sell a thousand of something similar. We'd be delighted. What, what, what space does that give for publishers who want to get involved, people who want to become publishers and get involved here? I mean, it's a huge space, and I think that's partly why you see everybody in the world trying to get involved in self-publishing. It's also kind of creating, though, I mean, I so I wrote a book about bicycling and economics, and ever since I started writing about this, I can't help but think of everything in economic terms of supply and demand. But right now what we have is a huge supply of authors because everybody in the world has heard like, okay, it's a great time to become an author, entrepreneur, or a self-publisher, or create your own book. And what this means is that there's also a huge growth in the market of people to serve these potential new authors. And unfortunately, what that means is now authors are being asked to pay to publish their books. And so there's this like author services industry that's springing up and most of them are total leeches and sharks. I'm sorry. If anyone is asking you to pay money to publish your own book, don't do it. <laughs> this used to be called Vanity Press. I think it's still called yeah. Vanity Press, but it is. there was something like 360,000 self-published books last year, that just the ones that were counted by books in print, I think. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And I mean, people will promise, make huge promises and kind of they know how to stroke authors' egos. Like, you know, a lot of authors are self-conscious about vanity pressers. They're self-publishing. So, you know, the, the ones that do well are the ones that are like, no, we chose you. We have a rigorous editorial process. And then the people who say they have national distribution and can get you into Amazon also are really popular. These things are not necessarily good. I've seen people really struggle to kind of put their books out there and like work really hard to get like kind of big traditional distribution and then fall flat and just have to pay all the fees and sell books at this huge, huge, huge discount that isn't sustainable. Um, and we should, and should we distinguish between them? I know there's the, those are the outfits that are sort of pro, uh, going after you and then you have to pay fees and get it, but that's distinguished from say print on demand services and things like that where they, well, a lot of them are paired with print on demand services ah, and a lot okay. of print on demand services offer this where they're like, Oh, we will help you publish your book for yourself. And for only $2,500, we'll provide editorial and cover design services as well, you know, and, and distribution. Oh yeah. These are the upsells. Yeah. yeah. So the, so the 
the, so the low side is like because I'm looking at CreateSpace, for instance, at Amazon mm-hmm. uh, division where I might take the ebook version, which is expanded and different, and it can be print. I mean, this is this you know shipping thing is it costs uh, on average about twenty three dollars to ship one of my books to Europe or Asia, and mm-hmm. um, but I could have print on demand done and have it printed locally and shipped the whole thing, even though it would be black and white, not color, it would be slightly different mm-hmm. in Canada and in parts of Europe and elsewhere in the world. Nice. And that's you know that's sort of like that magic, the teleporter. I'm teleporting my <laughs> yes. my book and it's pretty locally. But but that's a separate issue. That's the like I'm a publisher. I want another venue. I go there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I oh I don't need any of those services. Skip 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 skip. And I pay you know two hundred dollars and whatever basic fees mm-hmm. and sell it. You're talking about the the upsell at those sites and sites that are particularly advertising to people who who they're sort of promising we can make your book succeed. Anything you have will take because it'll go through our processes and then we will market it for you. Essentially, yeah. And essentially these people are, these services are offering authors a bad business plan. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with print on demand or eBooks or any of this stuff inherently, but what is wrong is that people who are suddenly getting themselves roped into these really bad deals that essentially add up to, what used to be known as Vanity Press Publication, and now it's you know called a number of other things like hybrid publishing or co-publishing or whatever, or you know just self-publishing. But it's you know you have these pie-in-the-sky dreams, and it really like you still have to have a strong business plan for publishing. You have to sort of understand what you're getting yourself into, and I think it's great when people want to publish their own books, but I would say don't see yourself as an author entrepreneur, see yourself as a publisher. Like start, you're starting a publishing company. What are the things you need to do? Um, make a plan, do all the math, kind of wipe the rose colored clouds out of your eyes and like look at, and it's possible to do it really well and to succeed really well. But I think the thing that a lot of people want to shortcut around is a doing the business work and b building the audience. People you know, I mean, of course you write something and you really want to believe that the right audience will find it. Once in a while that happens, but what you kind of have to do is build that audience from the ground up. You have to have a base, whether that's through social media or a blog or through starting publishing in a small way or through conventions or through whatever the way it is that you relate to people. You essentially still have to sell books by hand in order to do well in publishing. So I would say for any listeners out there who want to get started, don't neglect that part. Well, I, I want to, this is a perfect transition because I was, I, I realized we haven't talked specifically about your community. I wanted to talk about, about both the community that you've created around what you're doing and the community you're, I guess, part of, and then what you want to create as well, because I feel like the means by which you're doing things are the means by which you want to spread the word and create these new conversations. And and so at the outset, you know, we, we talked before the uh, the show about like, all right, how do I pin a label on you? What what label can I? And without <laughs> without pigeonholing, without, and we say, in feminist bicycle advocates, ad. ad activist, bicycle <laughs> activist. I will say that 10 times fast is kind of the thing that, that you narrowed down to. And, and that's a very specific thing. You see bicycles and bicycles are a perfect topic for this show because I think we're seeing a lot of innovation in bicycles. And you wrote an article for the magazine about Bachwitzen, the Dutch cargo bikes and where, how mm-hmm. they're transforming some people's lives and maybe starting to have an impact on cities. And so where do bikes fit into, you know, why be a feminist bicycle activist? Where where do those three different words connect for you? That's a great question. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's all about transforming the way we interact with each other, the way our communities work on a sort of basic infrastructural economic level. I know that sounds like 
a lot more highfalutin and less explanatory than what you just said. No, no. But <laughs> well, you wrote a book called Bikeonomics, so you gotta yes. you have some thoughts about this. <laughs> my book, um, yeah, my book is Bikeonomics: How Bicycling Can Save the Economy. And I mean, I guess okay. So when I was a teenager, I took a cross-country train trip, and I read a book called The Geography of Nowhere by James Howard Kunstler, and it totally blew my mind. And the whole time I was reading it, I was looking out the window at sort of the back alleys and highways and sort of civic spaces and domestic spaces of America. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I can't, you know, I couldn't turn away from what I was seeing, just sort of the way that our communities work, but also the way that they're broken and the way that we're really divided. And it's just been impossible for me ever since to not see, you know, sort of the the impact and the damage of being centered around the automobile. And ever since I, I started bicycling as a, well, I thought I was an adult. I was 20. Um, and <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> I know, right? But for me, that was like really liberating because I refused to drive a car, but relying on transit where I grew up was just unbelievably useless. Well, and, you were, and you're from uh, New Haven, right? New Haven, Connecticut? Yeah, I'm from a suburb of New Haven, Connecticut. So the transit right. was really bad. One, and, when once was probably terrific there. One, I mean, I've seen pictures yeah. of New Haven. I went to Yale, so I know New Haven a bit. Oh, and yeah. you see <laughs> pictures, I know the suburbs and so forth. And then you see pictures, there were streetcars that probably went all the way, uh, as in every community, those were all torn mm-hmm. out because of the car. Mm-hmm. I know. And I lived in a streetcar suburb. I mean, it was designed like a walkable, livable community, but all of the pieces were just broken. And just being able to see how they were broken was incredibly empowering i guess and it also really made me determined to escape and i ended up moving to portland which is a relatively easy place to live when you're in central portland just because you can walk to the store it's like really simple things like that and well, everything is human scale like this the mm-hmm. crosswalk lights are timed downtown to the space of a walker you can you can walk and then one scale up is bike and one scale up is you know, the street uh, streetcars trams and light rail and then mm-hmm. so like every scale of distance is sort of covered by a different form of transportation that's available. Exactly. And my ideal is being able to walk everywhere mm-hmm. or maybe take the bus or streetcar for longer distances. The way I see bicycling is it's almost like a Band-Aid. I know that sounds a little disparaging. I guess it is. But, but you know, we have such car scale cities and the bicycle is actually really great for getting around in a city that's designed for cars so long as you're not like actually in there with the cars that are when they're moving 40 miles an hour or more um so the way i see the bicycle is it's like you know it's more flexible than the bus it's faster than walking you can actually cover the distances you need to cover at speeds that you need to cover them in most places and it really doesn't take very much um investment um either personally or publicly to create really good conditions for bicycling walking and transit it's a little harder it's a little more expensive it's still not as expensive as cars and roads which are just one of the hugest subsidies that we have Mm -hmm. in this country but the bicycle really is like it's like it's like our emergency measure and we really are in an emergency when it comes to infrastructure and culture and health and all of these things and the bicycle is like one of those it doesn't solve everything but it's like you know it's like taking Tylenol for your headache like it will actually it's a small thing that will actually help your problem quite a bit what's you know and I don't know if listeners how up you know we've there's a lot of different listeners to the show, and I don't know how many. And some of them are in Europe, going like, "Yes, yes," nodding. Netherlands, yes, of course. Everything you're saying, <laughs> but you know, th- what you're saying is not. It might have been outlandish even several years ago through a lot of people's ears, and now it's his mainstream economic thinking and, and th- is about uh, people who are sensible, who don't have an ideology, and that's going to be ideology on the left or right, to that matter. Mm-hmm. Is is that um, transportation, uh, the breakdown in, in infrastructure and 
in affordable transportation is one of the biggest problems facing us. And the things like, I mean, it's funny that you say a bike is a band-aid. I love the fact that you are a bicycling activist and you're not so inside a movement that you don't recognize its role in, in how you're looking at the world, that it's a tool that papers over problems as opposed to being a solution in itself. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, I don't want to disparage bicycling, but it's like, I don't want to, I want to ride my bike. I love riding my bike, but I don't want to have to ride my bike. And right now, even in Portland for a lot of trips, like I can walk a lot of places, but if I don't have a car, then I have to ride my bike or take the bus. And the bike is just a much, you know, more feasible solution for a lot of reasons. And I really would like biking to be sort of like driving. I'd like it to be a choice that many people can make and many people will make because it's fun, because it feels good, because it's healthy. But I don't want it to be something that we're sort of like, you know, for a lot of people, like riding a bike is, you know, you get a DUI and you're like, okay, I guess I have to bike, you know, like it's not necessarily this awesome choice. A lot of people love it for that when they discover it for that reason. But, you know, it's especially in places where the streets are just badly designed. It's not fun to get around no matter how you're going. Well, it's a tool of, uh, I'll say this again, like the bike isn't a tool, but like transportation choices are a tool of economic oppression. And, mm-hmm. I, and I sound exactly like a Marxist, Marxist when I say that, but I think it's actually a pretty <laughs> mainstream thing is, is we have cities now because of gentrification which is and gentrification in itself also not a bad thing gentrification without policy and zoning that requires a mixed income housing uh, and subsidies of housing in communities is what's actually causing the real problem not the fact that people are spending more for houses but the fact that there's a policy failure uh, Mm -hmm. massive government policy failure that doesn't create mixed neighborhoods the way they used to be in America, that cities used to be huge mixes and there'd be adjacent neighborhoods and people who are low income would live in one and work in walkable or maybe bussable distances. But now people who are, I mean, I think uh, Aspen is one of the worst examples, right? And Manhattan is probably one as well at a larger Mm -hmm. scale is that the people who do all the work cannot afford to live within often in, in reasonable distance of the place they work. It's not walkable. It's, you know, they maybe they can't afford to drive because it's too expensive to park or owning a car is too expensive. So it becomes this incredible, like, economic diaspora. And the bike doesn't mm-hmm. solve that, but the bike is part of encouraging uh, people to have multiple modes of transportation to reduce the economic disparity. I do. I mean, we are talking about economics, aren't we? But, but it's true, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, I think, I think I have an analysis that's not biased in any direction. I think it's just true. Uh, true. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, my boyfriend and I, we have like a yard full of bikes and bike stuff and we're building a bike shed. We like to joke that we're helping keep property values down in our neighborhood, <laughs> reversing gentrification <laughs> through bicycling, positive, positive, yeah. <laughs> doing our best. But yeah, and I mean, I think this is also where feminism comes in, you know, like the gender division of labor in this country is just unbelievable. Like right now we are having trouble passing a law that would make equal pay necessary. Like, come on, people get with the times it's not the 1890s anymore but we are you know we really like statistically women are paid less than men for doing the same work and at the same time women are doing more unpaid labor Mm -hmm. whether they're single moms or even if they're in a household where it's a man and a woman and they're married and they both work 40 hours a week for money outside the home the woman is probably earning less money and doing more of the unpaid work especially if there's children or elderly people that need to be cared for in the household so these are major transportation issues then this is not an assertion on your part i I will link in the show notes that this is actually a statistically proven thing this isn't uh, Mm -hmm. 
it's not an ideological assertion. It's actually uh, factually provable, and I will link to that. Thank you for uh, – yes. Well, some people will hear that, and they'll say, like, well, that sounds like That's a bunch opinion. of can't. And it's like, no, <laughs> at times maybe people would assert it because it was observable, but now there's actually rigorous longitudinal study that shows it's, it's true. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's this culture that we have developed. It's got a lot of bases. One of the reasons for it is historically the car. You've got Henry Ford back in the day uh, building his ideal cities uh, where, you know, he went in and, like, literally micromanaged his workers' lives at home. And, you know, the idea was that a husband and wife and their kids would live in a single-family home with a yard and they would own all of their own electrical appliances. They would own a car. The woman would do all of the housework and the man would work for money. And it was this, like, great little utopia. I mean, it never worked from the beginning, but it really stopped working by the 60s when women started having to go back to work in droves. And, I mean, this is a lot of where, you know, second-wave feminism is coming from is, like, you know, this whole debate about whether women should work or not. I mean, of but it was all economics driving this. But we had built these places where you could only get to them by car. Suddenly you needed two cars instead of just one. Suddenly you had to like have somebody, you know, doing all of that unpaid labor that used to be one person's job, but was now like have had to be put in kind of around the margins. And, you know, this sort of inequality just has kind of continued to take on different forms. Now, now bikes play into this. You, uh, bikes play into the – there's like the feminist role the, the, and the bicycling role. How do those two intersect for you? Um, well, I didn't really think of myself as a feminist. Well, I did when I was a teenager and then I sort of got into my 20s and I went a little wild and I lost track of a lot of my politics. And then when I got involved in the bicycle movement, I started to have these experiences that really brought home for me sort of – the reality of not just economic inequality, but inequality of expectations and inequality of culture. And it just, I had just experience after experience where I was, you know, the only person, the only female person at a meeting and I was asked to take notes or, you know, I was told that I was only invited to something, not because I was an expert, but because they needed the woman's perspective. And I, you know, just kind of watching, I would go to bike races and I would see you know, the race announcer yell disparaging things to women and like make sexist comments on the megaphone. And all of these little thousand paper cuts, you know, just added up to sort of a revelation that this was really screwed up. I really didn't want to, you know, accept this as normal. And I didn't really feel like kind of working at it from the inside to change the culture was going to do it. So I just needed to speak up from the outside. And that's really sort of was a moment where I just kind of like, that was, that was the moment when I was like, I'm going to strike off on my own and I'm going to like create a megaphone for talking about these issues. And that was when I started writing those zines and started like publishing other women who were talking about the same things and other men also. And just kind of slowly growing to think about other equity issues also has been part of that. I've been learning a lot over the last four or five years. I mean, I've just really, I've, 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 I've come a long way. So I try to have empathy for people who, are just starting to think about these issues and not necessarily getting them right because, you know, we all have to come from somewhere. But part of what I want to do is kind of change the discourse so that we can both talk about what we see going on that's wrong, but also so that we can create something new that's right. Well, here's the aha thing too, of course, is that is that the the time which you started to do that, there was a mechanism for funding that didn't exist before. Yes. And then these collide and you're able to, uh, you know, I was thinking as you talk about bicycles, I'm like, are bicycles the crowdfunding? They're like a point 
I mean, there's this issue about point sources and non-point sources here, but like in terms of pollution, there's these issues about uh, point source pollution is like a giant factory, and uh, you can solve that by making the factory do stuff, or the factory chooses to do itself, or or whatever. But then non-point source is the hard thing, like a, mm-hmm. a billion cats peeing are non-point source <laughs> problems. And it's really hard to solve that problem, yeah. and I realize bikes are sort of a non-point source problem, the same way that. Crowdfunding is a little bit of a non-point source, or, or it's a solution, I should say, to a non-point source problem. Is the people involved in crowdfunding as backers aren't necessarily connected by anything but you, but they come from all different places and all the different projects on a crowdfunding site, or or even stuff you host on your own site that's got a you know pre-order or crowdfunding model. These all don't have a; they're not like a. It's not even just like the the. Um, gatekeeper or the central authority. It's just even that they're so completely disparate and unrelated, and yet they can all solve different problems. And biking, the way you describe it, sounds like that as well. Yeah. I mean, I really see it as it's like, you know, this thing that's cool right now. So it's kind of getting branded as this like hipster lifestyle choice, but I really (laughs) see it as more of a tool for social justice. It's kind of a technology for civic action. You know, people, anyone who wants to can get on a bike today and you know, there's not a huge economic barrier. There's There are barriers out there, but they are overcomable by individual people. And you can kind of do this thing for yourself that helps you, but that also sort of taps you into bigger possibilities. And it's not like the cycling movement is this unified thing at all. Cyclists love to disagree with each other. There's lots of different people using bicycles as technology, almost sometimes at odds with each other. Sometimes people are really into unity and solidarity but it's it's something that anyone can do and people are starting to really kind of play with that and I mean have been for a long time you look at critical mass which began in 1992 I mean that for me is really like the pinnacle of bicycling as a civic action is people getting together to ride together and just change what a street means in a way. I mean, it worked too. I mean, Critical Mass mm-hmm. was, I mean, just like ACT UP and, and other groups that were were extreme in their focus because they were in response to rejection, anger, uh, political, you know, uh, violence, all these things, right? Bikers were, bikers are still subject to violence and, you know, the AIDS activism trying to accelerate the the, the flow of drugs and the, through to patients who needed it. All these things, they may came out of a, an area of extremism because they were a reaction, but then the ideas become mainstream. I mean, Critical mm-hmm. Mass still has extreme components of it. We've had some issues in Seattle and whatever, but there, but the ideas that were uh, extremist 22 years ago, Seattle rebuilt itself. The last mayor, road diets, all these, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the streets have more bike paths. They built separation. They put it, so many things have done, been done. And I don't know how much safer Seattle is for cycling. I don't know how it actually plays out. Uh, that has the critical components to go back and say, we made all these changes. What happened? Did we succeed? Mm-hmm. But, but these ideas that we're off on the side and, um, you know, and to bring it back to like, you know, some of the structure of, of what we talk about on the show too, is that crowdfunding in five years has gone from something that seemed like, Oh, it seems like a fad and won't be that many people involved to it's, you know, might be a billion dollars of in the, in maybe just the U S in the, in Canada, it's few countries, uh, the rewards based crowdfunding alone in 2014. And so where does that go as a tool for change, both in individuals lives and in these broader areas we're talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess comparing crowdfunding with bicycling is really interesting. I mean, when you're looking at like culture, kind of what is our cultural moment, you've got like the Obama campaign raising donations mm-hmm. from hundreds of thousands of people in tiny quantities. You've got text mobs. You've got like all of these sort of like dispersed things. But all of these things go through something like through some central point. But 
when it comes to bicycling, it's like something we're inventing as we go. And there's like all these local iterations and it's like really creative. And it really, I mean, you can like, it doesn't always have to be this way, and but but there is a, this immense possibility in bicycling for this kind of truly democratic culture to rise up that really suits a local area and its needs and gives people a voice for what they need that I think I haven't seen crowdfunding do so much. Like crowdfunding seems to be a way to unite people, like almost like a, a forum on the internet, like it unites people from around mm -hmm. the world who have the same like really, really niche interest, whereas bicycling, like a bicycle is just a tool for people to use to like create something that is specific to their culture. But maybe crowdfunding is that too. No, I don't want to be that profound. Maybe. But, but, <laughs> no, I don't want to be too tendentious it about be. it either. But I, I think it's. I think the the bike is a is a tool of individual. I mean, we don't. We can't yet. Most people can't build a bike from scratch because you need steel and metal and rubber and like all these things. But this is where I I don't want to speculate about the future too much. But three D printing, people were wondering. I've wondered through the entire history of its development. Will this allow people to do small scale manufacturing in their home, almost like cottage industry? But I don't. I don't know if some people have focused on it as people everyone will be a cottage business but others have said this will let us do you know we put solar panels up we get a 3d printer that has to be manufactured but 3d printers can now make other 3d printers and that'll <laughs> accelerate over time there's still materials you know we still have to get iron ore out of the ground and make iron powder that can feed the 3d printers but if i could print a bike in my house then that profoundly changes my ability uh, to fund my own transportation. And will that be though, it? Though I, though I see it as more like I, what I actually see happening is there's this industry springing up of, um, you know, custom frame builders who build incredibly expensive bikes with incredibly high costs yeah. at incredibly tiny margins. And what people are starting to do is like expand, change the scale of their businesses slightly. So they're making small, smaller batches of identical bikes that are manufactured locally and often sold locally. And they're, you know, more expensive than most bikes, but they're less expensive than most cars. And this is like the kind of thing that I see actually potentially economically transforming society. I mean, what we really do need is a return to smaller scale local manufacturing, not necessarily like artisanal craft manufacturing, but like actual, you know, family wage jobs at shops where your boss has some accountability to you, or maybe you don't have a boss and like actually producing goods that people want to buy. And I see this as being more potentially, oh, I don't want to say it again, but disruptive to the current like complete freak out in the market over capital <laughs> than anything well, else. Well, this, this brings us back to like shipping and your books too, is that yes. you're working with a local printer to make small quantity, uh, small batches of books handmade and then shipped out elsewhere. Um, but you're working with a local printer. Um, I chose to work, I work with... I, I, I use USA printers, but... Are they, um, where are they at? Are they in... Uh, um, one of my printers is in Oakland. And it's a feminist, mm. uh, small-scale, family-run print shop called 1984. And I do my zines there. And then I do my books and bigger runs at a book printer in Mattoon, Illinois. Well, that's neat. So my printer is in Wisconsin. And I chose an American printer partly because of shipping costs and, you know, kind of consistent a consistency of being able to know when things would happen. Mm -hmm. Because I've heard horror stories about stuff print, not the quality necessarily, but the ability to keep things moving along on a schedule outside the United States where you can't go or it's wrong. You know, time zones, language barriers, uh, all the rest of it. But so I guess my, and local is maybe in a broader sense there, but uh, because printing is consolidated quite a bit. But I was going to come around to the shipping again is the increased cost of transportation at every mm -hmm. scale, including freight, yeah. means that we have to shop locally because it's more expensive the further you get away. It used to be highly subsidized and cheaper and the subsidies are going away. 
costs are going up. We don't know when we're at peak oil. Like all, you know, the fracking has become contentious. All these things. We may have to uh, deal with things more locally because it won't be cost effective anymore the way it was. It's true. And I mean, that's really kind of for the best. I mean, the reason that it was cost effective before wasn't because it was really cost effective. It's not right. really cost effective to print anything in China. It's just all your costs are externalized. We hid every, right, we're paying the labor costs and the environmental costs. And you don't want to know what they put in the ink in China sometimes. You don't want to know what they put in the ink. Uh, well, so, so Ellie, I think we've gone, now we have gone full cycle, full circle. But it's, uh, yeah, I think people should find you at takingthelane.com. It'll be in the and the show notes and find your 18 different projects that have already been funded, one that's underway, read your blog, buy some books, and, and check out these ideas about changing the uh, overall economy and society through these individual efforts that, that add up. Thanks for coming on and talking about all this. Thanks so much. I love talking about taking back the streets. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at v-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.